This episode was previously recorded and broadcast to a live audience and has not been edited for content. Please excuse any references to slides and Q&A. Thank you for joining us. Welcome, everyone, and Happy New Year. I'm thrilled that we're able to get back starting our webinars. And with this is a follow-up webinar to the one we had in October, Do You See What I See? Talking about the science of eyewitness testimony and identification. We're going to be talking more about the details about eyewitness identification in today's webinar. And I'm pleased that our speakers, Judge Richard McKelvey and Professor Louisa Heine are here with us to present this topic. Thank you, Lori. And hopefully today's not a day for doom scrolling and Judge McKelvey and I will be so entertaining that you'll wanna stay for the full 60 minutes and watch us. Um, we're gonna start today with the same way that I start out my classes, which is with something I call a happy, happy. Rich and I were talking about the best lineup cartoons and videos. And so we're going to play a video of my favorite best worst lineup. Uh, my kids and I have been binge watching Brooklyn Nine-Nine. That might say something about my parenting, but here we go with the best worst lineup. Charlie, can you play it for us? So, do you recognize any of these men? I was hiding in the bathroom stall, so I didn't see his face, but I heard him. He was singing along to the music at the bar. Do you remember what he was singing? I think it was that song, I Want It That Way. Backstreet Boys, I'm familiar. Okay. Number one, could you please sing the opening to I Want It That Way? Really? Okay. You are my fire. <laughs> Number two, keep it going. The one desire number three believe when i say number four i want it that way tell me why ain't nothing but a heartache tell me why ain't nothing but a mistake now number five i never want to hear you say I want it that way. Now, will you do that? Please? Oh, chills. Literal chills. It was number five. Number five killed my brother. Oh, my God. I forgot about that part. Thanks, Charlie. Judge McKelvey and I were talking about how many mistakes we could find in that one lineup. Judge McKelvey? Yeah, I mean, so to, to start out with, you have a witness who right out of the block says, I was in the bathroom and I didn't see anybody. So why is she looking at anybody? That's the first thing. The second thing is you look at the lineup itself. You have, I, I think right off the top of my memory, either two or three uh, African-Americans, a couple of Caucasians. Uh, one of them is like six foot four. The other are like five foot seven or five foot eight. Some of them have facial hair. Some of them don't. Um, th th there are, almost too many things to enumerate with respect to why that wouldn't work. But it, in my view, it starts right off the top at it. Why would you, why would you present a lineup to somebody who, who was already indicated they didn't actually see the person. And for a voice lineup, she shouldn't be viewing faces anyway, if they were going to do something exactly. along yeah. those and, lines. Yeah. So today we're going to talk about the second half of eyewitness identifications. Last time we talked about rule 617, 
why it exists, what the science is behind it. Today, Judge McKelvey and I are going to discuss the ways that you litigate the rule. And the way we're going to do it is chronologically. So starting with the language of the rule, thinking about motions and limine, all the way through what might happen with experts at trial and jury instructions at trial. So we're starting with the language of our rule that tells us that the court shall exclude evidence if the party challenging the evidence shows that a fact finder, considering the factors that we talked about last time, finds, uh, sorry, could not reasonably rely on the eyewitness identification. And the judge can consider things like opportunity to observe, level of attention, things that we talked about like same race bias and weapon focus. So let's start with motions in limine. Judge McKelvey, are we as defense attorneys, we filing a motion in limine as part of our stock instructions every single time? I, I, I obviously not every single time. I think that you really need to look at it and analyze it. There's no point in litigating something like this that looks like everything has been done correctly, but you really need to look at it to find out whether it has. Determination is going to be made based on a lot of factors. Which law enforcement agency did this? What are their protocols? Uh, if we're talking about the FBI or the Salt Lake City Police Department or Unified PD, which have uh, really experienced, well-trained uh, detectives who have a protocol that they're supposed to go through, that they should follow. And you look at it, and if they followed it, it appears obvious that they have. It's no different than, church, than challenging a search warrant. There's no point in doing that if right out of the blocks you can see that it's a good search warrant. It's valid on its face. The execution of it was appropriate. Uh, then you're not going to waste your time, the court's time, and your client's money, for, uh, for that matter, uh, challenging something that appears to be, I, I mean, from an admissibility standard, as their standpoint, uh, just solid. But there are, there are a lot of different things that you ought to be looking at and, and questions that you should be asking uh, to decide whether or not that's the case. <clears throat> So the rule itself talks about some of the best practices, cites to articles, so that the advisory committee notes cite to some of the key articles and experts in this topic. Do you think that we need an expert affidavit where we are filing a motion to suppress one of possibly several eyewitness identifications in a case? I think it would certainly be helpful because what you're objective is going to be probably, if you're actually act, looking towards suppressing the identification, keeping it out of court, uh, eventually you're going to want to have a hearing about that. And you would want to have an expert witness probably to testify about how suggestive the lineup was, the, the manner and the, the, the different manners in which the investigative agency didn't follow best practices, the ways in which there could have been some kind of bias creep into the in, into the process or suggestiveness creep into the process. And those are the kind of things that, I mean, most judges don't understand. I've done this probably more than most, and I still don't, you know, I, I, I'm not going to, um, uh, I'm not going to replace a, an expert's analysis with my own uh, regarding 
all of the psychological factors, for example, that come into the things that we've talked about earlier, cross-racial identification, time, stress, uh, weapon fixation, uh, um, bias confirmation, all of those things that we've looked at that are going to come into play that a judge is going to have to look into as a gatekeeper, right? I mean, as a, as a first step, it's analogous to a, a state versus Ramash hearing where you're uh, suggesting to the court that this evidence is not sufficiently reliable, that a jury should even hear it, that the, that the state shouldn't be allowed to even present it to the, to the jury because of lack of indicia of reliability. And the good news is we have some of the key eyewitness experts here at the University of Utah, yes? And have been for a long time. I mean, they've they've kind of been the vanguard clear back in the, uh, the 70s and 80s when this really started to become something that psychiatrists and psychologists studied as opposed to just something that, that lawyers were studying. And, and some of the... Um, the experience and the, and the research that was done here at the University of Utah was really instructive on how fallible eyewitness identification can be and particularly how fallible it is as it contrasts with the witness's subjective perception of how correct they are. Uh, you know, that, that, there's, that there's not usually or not often a, um, a correlation between how secure a witness is in his or her identification and how accurate that identification actually is. We know you and I talked about this, that uh, an indigent defendant would unequivocally be entitled to the services of an expert at trial. What, if anything, do we know about the right to an expert at an in limine stage? So I, I would think that a court would probably grant that in any motion to suppress the uh, um, the identification. That's going to be rarely granted, quite frankly, because just like with a search warrant or a confession or something like that, where there's a there's kind of a two prong uh, test, I, I, or at least a two, uh, the, the procedure is is in two steps. Uh, you can challenge it before the trial court as an initial matter. And if you're successful there and the trial court uh, suppresses the evidence, then it doesn't come in at all. And that could be the end of the case, just like uh, uh, the suppression of a confession could be the end of a case. If that's the primary evidence that the prosecution is working on, or, or if there's a search warrant that, that has been challenged and the evidence is suppressed, could be the end of the case. But the defendant always has an opportunity even if the trial court doesn't suppress the evidence to challenge its, its validity and its credibility. I mean, obviously if the judge says uh, the process was okay, the investigators did the right thing. There's no reason that this witness shouldn't be allowed to testify. Doesn't preclude the defendant from challenging whether or not that testimony is accurate. It's, it's really kind of a threshold gatekeeper provision. And, I don't see those kind of challenges very frequently because I think that most defense attorneys recognize that only in the, in the most, what they would refer to as egregious situations, um, like, like the one you just showed, uh, you know, on the, on the Brooklyn nine, nine, where you'd look at it and say like, there's, 
there's absolutely no way that uh, that you could look at that and say that that was an objectively reasonable way to handle the lineup. Uh, probably your better bet is going to be just to argue identification issues with the jury and to have an expert witness testify about that so that the jury is well informed about all of the uh, the pitfalls that are involved in eyewitness identification that a lay person probably wouldn't really understand. You and I were debating fruit of the poisonous tree as late as mm, 11.54 this morning. This is something um, that I think is going to end up being litigated. So um, I think we probably have some newer practitioners and more seasoned practitioners on with us today. Um, more seasoned practitioners are probably familiar with Ramirez and the idea in Utah that perhaps eyewitness identification has a constitutional underpinning. Lujan now tells us, State v. Lujan tells us, really the inquiry starts with 617. But then we've got some other language in Lujan that says, well, there's a there's a Perry backstop. There's a due process clause backstop here. Do you have some thoughts or maybe we, we can kick around the thoughts we had about whether a 617 violation can be the font of a successful fruit of the poisonous tree argument? And a- after our, our interaction earlier this morning, I, I, I've given that some thought as well and, and tried to look at some of the other cases. I think it's certainly possible. I mean, if it, it's just like any other due process violation. If, if you looked at it and you said, this is so egregious that um, I, I mean, not only am I going to suppress the confession or the confession, the the identification, but it, it no longer has any indicia of reliability. And if this witness is allowed to testify in trial, and the jury hears them testify, and there's no way to adequately really parse out whether or not the identification is the product of the, their recollection of the event or their recollection of the improper identification procedure, then the appropriate remedy would be to not allow them to testify at all with respect to identification. That doesn't mean that the witness couldn't testify. I mean, if you have a robbery victim um, and you have other evidence other than the identification that would that would support a conviction, certainly the, the, the robbery victim could testify that they were robbed. They could provide, I think, whatever general description they provided to the police before the improper lineup or show up or whatever it is that we're, that we're talking about, the identification procedure that is excluded. But you I'm mean, number one, you wouldn't let them testify about the identification procedure itself. You wouldn't allow them to testify with respect to identification. And you wouldn't allow them to testify about any uh, indicia of identification that was gleaned only as a result of the show up or lineup. So in other words, if you had a, a, a victim who gave a general description of somebody and uh, it didn't include their eye color. And then they had a, an improper lineup or show up. And at that improper lineup or show up, they realized that the individual had some, some very distinctive looking blue eyes. Uh, the, um, the suppression of the identification would include 
suppressing that detail if there was no even even if even if the witness would say like oh you know when i saw the guy in person i realized those blue eyes were really jumped out at me but they didn't report that to the police they didn't put it in their in their written statement i think that there would be a really compelling argument that there was not there's not enough trustworthiness that their identification of those uh, of the eye color is a product of their recollection of the event as opposed to their recollection of the procedure the identification procedure that the trial court has already determined was was constitutionally inadequate i also when we're thinking about fruit arguments fruit of the poisonous tree arguments i can also i think but I'm interested in your point of view, both as a practitioner and as a judge, but I can envision a circumstance where we have a, for example, a show up. The show up is what generates the probable cause that might then result in a search warrant. And we end up with some kind of real evidence, documentary, or otherwise we find the weapon, et cetera. What do you think about the fruit of the poisonous tree in that circumstance and using the 617 argument as a way of suppressing later found evidence? I, I think that that's a more nuanced issue, obviously, because as we analyze things uh, under the search warrant um, provisions or the, the, the jurisprudence there, uh, we know that uh, if there's a good faith representation in the search warrant with respect to evidence, um, the trial court can rely on that, even if it turns out to be inaccurate, as long as the proponent of that information, the, the affiant, uh, has a good faith basis upon which to rely on it. And so there are a number of circumstances in which a, a, a lay witness has provided, provided information to police that it turns out not to be true, but the police have a good faith basis upon which to rely on it. They put that in the search warrant affidavit that is then used to support the affidavit and, and the search warrant. And the courts have said, you know, in, in, unless the police officers knew or had some, some good reason to believe that the information was inaccurate, even if it isn't accurate, it, it's allowed. And, and you, so you could end up with a situation, I think, where somebody could give information in a, in a lineup or a show up that gave investigators sufficient information to obtain a search warrant. The court could suppress the identification procedure and still uphold the search warrant because of that good faith exception. In, in other words, in, in order to, I, th- I think in order to exclude the, um, the search warrant itself, as opposed to the identification, it would, it would take a separate analysis and the court wouldn't just have to determine that the uh, um, that the lineup procedure or the identification procedure was constitutionally inadequate, but the police officer who engaged in that and then presented it to the to the uh, um, to the magistrate signing the search warrant would would not reasonably rely on the information that he or she obtained in that identification procedure. Do we think at all, I'm a a little troubled about the incentives there. Do we think at all about whether the officer did or did not use best practices uh, as they're laid out in 617 in setting up that lineup or that show up and perhaps with the, I'd say it, but nefarious intent of ending up with the the affidavit necessary for the probable cause? Yeah. 
Yeah, and, and obviously that's something that you always have to encounter or or look at. It, it's not something that it's not an allegation that often gets raised, but I think that if the trial court made a determination that there was some nefarious purpose that the uh, officers who engaged in the identification procedure intentionally prevaricated that they uh, you know that they either set it up in such a way that the, the witness was pointed toward a certain individual or they, they didn't follow best practices in a way that makes it pretty obvious that they had a candidate in mind and they wanted to do everything they could to get this witness to identify the candidate then you'd probably go through a Franks v. Delaware analysis and excise that information from the search warrant affidavit. And then with that information excised, make a determination as to whether or not there was still sufficient evidence to support a determination of probable cause. Do you envision, if a motion in limine is step one here, do you envision these ending with motions to dismiss or do you think that's just gonna be incredibly rare? You know, if if you had a case, and, and I'll go back and equate it to a case where you have a an unlawful search or an unlawful an unlawful confession taken in violation of somebody's Fifth or Sixth Amendment rights or Fourth Amendment rights in the case of a search, um, oftentimes a successful litigation of that motion from the defense perspective puts an end to a case. I mean, it it terminates it if 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 I have a, if I'm prosecuting a case in which a police officer pulls somebody over on the street and instigates an investigation that results in the uncovering of a quantity of narcotics, for example, and everything flows from that stop and that, and that search. And the trial court says that search was constitutionally inadequate and suppressed the evidence. There's no evidence upon which to proceed. But if I have a, a similar case in which I have that stop and then the police officer interviews the individual and the individual admits, yeah, somebody hired me to drive these drugs from San Diego to Chicago. Here's how it happened. And trial court says, okay, this, the stop was okay. The search was okay but the confession was obtained in violation of the defendant's fifth or sixth amendment rights, I'm gonna suppress the confession. Then the prosecution still has to decide, do I have sufficient evidence to go forward if, that, if the confession is suppressed because I still have the, the fruits of the search. I still have that. I still have this guy in the car with the drugs and strategically, tactically, you might think because of that, there's a good chance he's going to have to take the stand in order to explain how it is he came into possession of this huge quantity of drugs without being aware of it or, or without being criminally liable. And then at that point, you can cross-examine him about the suppressed confession unless it's been determined not only to be a violation of Miranda, but to be a vi but to be um, so egregious that it was not... Um, not voluntary. It a, yeah, it was an invol involuntary confession, and then and then it wouldn't come in under any circumstances. And you can always make that argument to a jury, even if the court uh, lets it in. Which which kind of leads us to the next thing that we were going to talk about about the the two step process or the multi step process of challenging these. Before we talk about that two step process, just practically thinking from the defense point of view, 
Are there time limits or other strategic issues that defense counsel should be thinking about at the pretrial stage? Yeah, I think so. If you are in a position where you think you have a an identification process that is subject to challenge, that it's suspect for some reason or another, you want to approach it in such a way that does not allow the potential witness to have any other exposure to the defendant. So in other words, you know, you, you don't want them identifying the defendant at a preliminary hearing. You don't want them necessarily looking at a lineup if they haven't already done that. You, because if, if there's a question about the validity of the identification, you don't want that to be polluted, so to speak, by a subsequent um, uh, introduction uh, of the defendant or the suspect to the victim because then it becomes much more difficult to try to ascertain whether the in-court identification is a a product of the witness's recollection of the offense itself or their recollection at some proceeding in which they were shown either a photograph of the suspect slash defendant or actually presented to them in, in person. And there are certainly circumstances under which a trial court might suppress the identification process itself, but still say, I I don't find it so egregious that I'm not going to let this witness testify. And then that puts you in a real quandary as a defense counsel. How are you going to cross-examine this witness if the judge has said, I'm not going to let you talk about the pretrial identification process state but I am going to let you put this witness on the stand. The witness testifies, identifies the defendant in the courtroom. How are you going to cross-examine that witness um, without disclosing the suppressed evidence, without disclosing the the fact that they had seen him in a lineup? And are you sure that your memory is a result of the, of the event as opposed to seeing this person in a lineup? And, And then it gets back to that bias confirmation thing that we talked about. And you actually had a really good example of this from when you were a U.S. attorney. How did you, where you had really tainted witnesses, right? Because they had been present at a hearing. It was actually a long time ago, even before I was at the U.S. attorney's office, when I was at the county attorney's office, now the DA's office. And it was a very troubling sex offense. The victim was, uh, uh, suffered from Down syndrome. So she was not, um, you know, the most, capable right on top of things witness that you would hope for the way the lineup procedure worked. And I assume it still works this way is you take the suspect, obviously you find a random group of people, usually from the jail because they're a captive audience. Um, You you have them right there and and they're all already dressed the way they need to be because everybody has to be dressed the same, bring them into a room. There's usually six to eight of them and have them stand in a row and it's on the record. There's a court reporter there. The prosecutor is there. The defense attorney is there. And typically the investigative agent is there. Uh, and then you have the witness or witnesses that are going to make the identification. And they're in another room because obviously you don't want them to observe the process where we're talking, you know, with the defense attorney is talking with his client. Uh, the case that I had, this was a sex offense, as I indicated, with a, a mentally challenged 
victim. And the defense attorney is usually given pretty broad um, discretion in where on the lineup his client stands, like number one, two, three, four on down the line. And the way this was set up, the defendant was in position number two, and there was another individual in position four. And the defense attorney said, like, yeah, I want my client in position number two. And then we sent the investigative agent out after that. And this is important. After that determination was made, the defendant's number two, the investigative agent went out to get the alleged victim. While he was out of the room, the defense attorney said, like, you know what? I've changed my mind. Number two, number four, change places. So his client went to the number four slot. The number four person went to the number two slot. The victim came in. She looked at the lineup and she identified number two. Now, whether the detective told her it was number two, I have no idea. I'd never asked him about it. I never pursued that. I don't think he would have been honest with me about it, uh, but it destroyed the case. I mean, obviously, I couldn't pursue the case anymore when the victim positively identified somebody that was not the suspect in the case and that we knew couldn't have committed the case because he was incarcerated at the time that the, uh, the events took place. I mean, he was just a filler, could have identified any of the other ones. And so that it, it makes you realize that those kind of things do happen and that there's a reason that it's important to scrutinize these things really carefully because whether advertently or inadvertently prosecutors and uh, and police officers can make suggestive thoughts can create suggestive thoughts that a that a victim or a witness will incorporate into their into their belief system we talked about that a little bit in our actually quite a bit in our first session on the ways in which we can we the ways in which prosecutors or investigating agents can sometimes very accidentally signal to a witness overtly or implicitly, yeah, you got it right. Right. Or, or, or you got it wrong. Uh, I, I think I told you another about another case, and I'm not sure if we discussed this in our in our previous uh, meeting, but even if we did, it probably bears repeating where uh, there was a lineup and there were two female witnesses to this crime. And one of them picked the person who was charged in the lineup. One of them picked somebody else out of the lineup. The next event that took place was a preliminary hearing. Both of those women were subpoenaed to testify in front of the, in the preliminary hearing. The prosecutor who was handling that case, who was supervised by me, I didn't find about, the, about this until afterward, but brought both witnesses into his office together and looked at the one who I made the identification and said, okay, I'm going to put you on the stand to testify about this. And then looked at the other one and said, at the lineup, you picked the wrong person. I'm going to excuse you. You're not going to testify. Now, I, 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 I can't think of anything regardless. And I don't believe that it was intentional. I don't believe that he, that he had any, any motive toward um, thwarting the veracity of, of the, uh, of the identification. But certainly what he did was validate the identification that the one witness had made. He's basically said, you, you, you got the right one. You picked the right person. And so when she gets to the preliminary hearing, her determination about who it was that committed this crime has already been validated by the prosecutor. And now at the preliminary hearing, unlike the lineup, he's going to be the only person sitting 
at council table. That's right. It's the one guy orange, sitting right there. Yeah. yeah prob- in probably the jumpsuit. Sitting suit. in an orange jumpsuit. Yeah. Right. With, you know, with shackles and, and, and two deputy uh, marshals or, you know, bailiffs standing behind him. And, and then once that occurs, you're done for. You can't possibly try to isolate and, and, and differentiate between an identification that takes place as a point as, as a result of, of the witness's actual memory of the event as opposed to more recent events where they've been exposed to the same individual or maybe a different individual, that's kind of the whole point, for much longer periods of time in much less stressful environments. You know, if she's sitting in a courtroom testifying at a preliminary hearing and the entire time she's testifying for 15 or 20 minutes, she's sitting there looking at the person, that's certainly more exposure than if if she were the victim of a bank robbery and and the, the robber was in front of her for 15 or 20 seconds. And then by the time you get to the trial, she could pick her, she could pick him out of a lineup like she could her own kids. We talked about another circumstance in which we had accidental, we, you, had accidental <laughs> exposure of the witnesses to a, well, I was going to say a confession, but a Rule 11 conversation. Um, sure. And then under the federal rules, the defendant ended up withdrawing his guilty plea. But under the Victim Rights Act, the witnesses had already been present for that very important hearing. Do you want to talk a little bit about that and how you yeah, dealt with it, it from the prosecution side? It, it, it was a really interesting and unusual situation, but it, it really kind of hits at the, at the square of this, where it was an individual that had uh, allegedly committed several robberies of Subway sandwich shops, um, called him the Subway robber. We brought it in federal court because of the um, you know, there, there was just so many of them and we, we used our federal kind of overreach statutes to bring him into, into federal court because the sentences were so much more severe. The defendant challenged the eyewitness identifications and wanted to put a, an expert witness on the stand at trial. We had a, uh, a Daubert hearing about that. Uh, unlike the state, at least in our state, the federal court, uh, judges have, a great deal of discretion about whether or not to allow an, an expert witness testify about that. Judge Stewart ruled that because we had so much other supporting evidence, an expert witness would not be helpful to the jury. And so he denied their request to have an expert witness testify. After that, the defendant decided to enter a guilty plea. And we worked out a plea agreement under 11 rule, uh, rule 11 C1C, I think it is, that allows the defense and the prosecutor to agree on a, a specific sentence. And if the judge won't, after seeing a pre-sentence report, impose that sentence, then the defendant's at liberty to withdraw his plea. So we worked that out. The defendant came in and pled guilty. Unbeknownst to me, because I don't, you know, you don't pay too much attention to what's going on in the background. Our victim witness counselor had notified some of the victims that this guy was going to plead guilty. And some of these victims came to court and actually were present when he entered his guilty plea, when the judge asked him, you know, did you commit these offenses with a factual background? And he said, yes. So then the pre-sentence report was prepared. Judge Stewart looked at the pre-sentence report and said, I don't think 10 years is enough for this guy. And so I am not going to accept the plea. And then it became, I became aware of the fact, and the defense attorney became aware of the fact that these, that some of these victims had been present 
during the plea. And it created an impossible quandary because if any of these cases went to trial, and it was our expectation that we were going to try them all together, if these victims came in to testify and they were going to identify this defendant as the person who robbed them, as a defense attorney, how could you possibly cross-examine that witness and ask them whether or not the identification they made in court was a product of their actual exposure to the defendant at the time of the robbery or their exposure to the defendant when they sat in court and watched him plead guilty to the very offense that he's on trial for. And it was just, it, in my view, it was an impossible task for a defense attorney to engage in. And I, I couldn't see how we'd be able to get past supporting a conviction at that point. And so I filed a motion, which I think was kind of unusual since the judge was basically ruling against the defendant. I filed a motion uh, to have the judge reconsider it and pointed that out to him. So like, you wouldn't have had any way to know this judge. I didn't know it, but these victims were in the courtroom when this guy pleaded guilty. If they didn't know what he looked like before, they know what he looks like now. And they know that when he, when they saw him, he admitted to doing these things. And so they're, their identification has been validated by the defendant. You, you, there's no way you could separate those. You just couldn't. And, and a defense attorney would be, I mean, you talk about a Hobson's choice. Do you leave it alone? Or do you say like, you were there when he pleaded guilty. <laughs> you could probably try to say like in a court proceeding, you know, you were there at a court proceeding on such and such a date and you saw the defendant there. And, uh, but, but the fact that he pleaded guilty would be the validation that he made that would give them more confidence. And so if a defense attorney, even if, even if you could kind of isolate what kind of hearing it was, you, you couldn't isolate the fact that, that the defendant, by his plea of guilty and his acknowledgement that those facts were true, validated the identification. And the witness is going to be sitting there now saying, like, well, of course it's the right guy. He told me it was the right guy. We talked just a little bit about experts. Let's move into talking about the use of expert testimony at trial. Um, Rule 617 says when the court admits eyewitness identification evidence, it may also receive related expert testimony upon request. So in 617, we have a may rule, not a must rule. We need, we're going to talk about how we read 617 along with 702 along with our case law in Utah. But you and I were talking a little bit about the uh, Utah Court of Appeals and the Utah Supreme Court and affirmance and reversal rates on the issue of admitting expert testimony. I talk to my students all the time. They have to repeat all the time. I say, are you going to win on appeal? No. Why? Abuse of discretion standard. But uh, it sounds like maybe things are a little bit different so yeah, it, it's really an interesting question, and and as you point out, the the abuse of discretion standard really does come into play. I didn't realize how uh, how precious those words were until I became a judge, <laughs> and, and and you realize, and I, and I say that somewhat jokingly. I had an attorney when I was a very young judge that that told me that if I had ruled in a certain way, that it would be reversible error. And I told him, Mr. Jones, he's making up a name. Uh, 
I, I, committing reversible error does not cause me to lose sleep. What causes me to lose sleep is the error that I commit that I would be convinced was error, but does not raise to the level of reversible error. And, and, and those are the, the backstops that we have um, that, that puts that into play. But you know, when, when trying to apply this to the issues that we're talking about with expert witnesses, uh, we have a slightly different rule in the state than in the federal system. Uh, you know, we've already talked about Daubert and, and the way that's created a gatekeeper role for the trial court in determining whether or not to allow uh, expert testimony. And most or everybody in our audience should know that, uh, that that's a two-pronged standard. Number one, whether or not the area, the subject matter, is something that is uh, sophisticated and difficult enough for people to understand that an expert witness would be able to assist the jury in understanding it, that it's not something that would be within the ken of a normal layperson. And then the second prong to that is whether or not this particular witness has sufficient qualifications uh, and background knowledge and everything to be qualified uh, as an expert witness in that area. Um, and the gatekeeping role from in the in the state under state versus Ramash is by a matter of a measure of nuance different than the than what we see from the U.S. Supreme Court. And the bottom line for that, from at least you know, this is anecdotally and just talking to colleagues kind of an indication that there is a, a bias, if that's the right word, in favor of allowing expert witnesses to testify when there's a margin of doubt about that. And one of my colleagues in a, uh, a judicial conference a few years ago kind of did a breakdown on the number of, of cases that had been considered by our Supreme Court and our, by our courts of appeal or our court of appeal on expert witnesses and the number of times in which the trial court's decision about an expert witness was sustained by the court of appeals of the Supreme court and the times when it was overturned and the percentages were pretty remarkable. And basically the lesson is in, unless it just like, seems like a ridiculous thing it weighs in favor of allowing the expert to testify. So in other words, trial courts were reversed much more often in refusing to allow an expert witness than in allowing an expert witness when the court sought, thought that it was not appropriate uh, by, by, a, by a very large margin. So the way I read, and you were talking about Daubert, I think I refer, referred to the Utah standard as Freibert, and you referred to it as Daubert plus. Um, here's my reading when we add the, so Ramash gets subsumed into the new 702. So when we add post 702 or amended 702 and Clopton, we say the testimony of qualified experts on factors that contribute to inaccurate witness identifications should be admitted if we can meet those requirements of 702. And after 617, it looks to me like the question is not, is this science reliable? The question under Clopton is not, would it help the jury? 
Instead, what we're really left with is, is this the right expert to present this information to, to the jury? And I think that that's a fair analysis that the that the the first part of that standard has been has been conclusively established that if eyewitness identification is a primary principal element of of the trial, uh, one of the the things that's that's truly in question, then the defendant is entitled as a matter of right, not just to a jury instruction about the the limitations and fallacies of eyewitness identification, but to have an expert testify. But it can't just be anybody, obviously. And again, I mean, the, the resources here are incredible. You get there's a there, there's a half a dozen psychiatrists or psychologists at the University of Utah that uh, testify about this kind of stuff on a regular basis that have done the research that, are pretty unflappable in terms of cross-examination and could give the, you know, the defendant uh, a fair opportunity to present that evidence and give the jury a fair opportunity to consider how valid the disidentification actually is. We have some pretty clear case law in Utah that it's not automatically ineffective assistance to forego an expert. Are there some strategic reasons that either the prosecution or the defense would want to forego use of experts at trial where the eyewitness identification has been ruled admissible? Well, I, I certainly think so. I mean, from the prosecution standpoint, I don't know why you'd really ever want to put on an expert unless you know, unless there was another expert that the, the defense already put on and you're just looking to try to rebut that. And, and you know, they had somebody who was really good and you have somebody that you think can help that. But from a defendant standpoint, I think that it really depends on what your theory is about why the, why the identification is, uh, is unreliable. If you believe it's unreliable because of some of the factors that the expert would talk about, cross-racial identification, identification under stress, weapon fixation, the kind of things that we have talked about that, that can come into, into play there. Um, then, then you probably would want to have an expert. But if your theory is that this person just wasn't present long enough, or they were intoxicated, or they were asleep, or they have a bias, or there's some other reason that they're identifying somebody that is not uh, is not the appropriate suspect, then you might want to approach it a different way just because you don't want to emphasize the idea that you're so concerned about how the jury's going to perceive this identification that you have to come, you have to have a, a, an expert come in and say, basically this witness doesn't know what they're talking about. Uh, sometimes if there is other evidence that you can focus on or that's being focused on uh, you're better off trying to um, minimize the eyewitness identification as opposed to accentuate it to, to put an exclamation mark on it. And, you know, if there's one thing that putting an expert on the stand to testify about it does, it's put an exclamation mark on it. We talked, speaking of exclamation marks, I talk to my students sometimes about where you want to ask for a jury instruction, where you don't want to ask for a jury instruction so that you're not saying, Hey, important thing here um, to our jurors. So 617 tells us that where the court admits eyewitness identification evidence, the court may and shall, if requested, instruct the jury consistent with the factors in subsection B and C and other relevant considerations. 
I read this as changing the standard under state versus long, which used to have this two-part standard. Now it seems like the the two-part, it's not really two-part, it's just, was there a request or not? Is that your reading right. as well? Uh, yeah, I think it is. And, and, and the way I read it is that um, I am at liberty, but I'm not required to read that instruction even in the absence of a defense request. But that if the defense requests that and eyewitness identification is a central issue in, in trial, um, then I'm required to. The defendant's entitled to it as a matter of, of statutory and basically a constitutional right. And it would probably be reversible error to not do that. I hate to ask for an advisory opinion, but what kinds, have you thought about what kinds of factors might lead you to invoke the May portion of the rule? I suppose I would do that only if I heard the witness testify and I was really troubled for whatever reason about the veracity of the evidence. Um, But I wouldn't, I wouldn't do it without at least having a conversation with defense counsel and asking them, you know, if, if they don't want the instruction, if they're not asking for the instruction, why not? What, you know, what's your, what's your trial strategy here? What is your argument going to be to the jury that is not going to be enhanced by having this instruction? How do you believe this instruction may be harmful to you? And if they had some considered response, then I would probably take that into consideration. Obviously, it would be on the record. And then it would be much less likely that the Supreme Court or the Court of Appeals would say, I committed plain error by not doing this, even in the absence of a defense request because I at least brought it up. Are there model or stock instructions in Utah that have already been written on this? Yes. Yeah. There's, I mean, there's a stock instruction that I guarantee every prosecutor has a copy of it. Every defense attorney that does any kind of practice at all has a copy of it. It's about two pages long. It's, it's easily probably in an eyewitness identification case. It's, it's the longest instruction that I have to read to the jury. Um, It's a very, uh, substantive. It's very detailed. It talks about all of these different factors, both with respect to uh, cross-racial examination or identification, um, all of the factors that might uh, come into play in, in making a determination whether or not somebody's I, I, identification is the product of their own uh, memory as opposed to uh, improper uh, influences, such as seeing them at preliminary hearing, the lighting was like, what their level of attention was, all of the things that you can imagine uh, that would come into play in questioning the veracity of a uh, an in-court identification are contemplated that instruction. And so for our new practitioners out there who might be in private practice, you don't have to reinvent the wheel. Um, we also have a question in the Q&A right now. Um, where can you find those stock instructions? I think it's a Muji instruction. I'm pretty sure that the uh, model U- Utah jury instructions in the criminal realm would have that. If not, um, you could contact literally anybody at the Legal Defenders Association, for example, and they'd be able to share it with you uh, at the click of an email. Uh, you know, if they've got it on their computer. They've got a PDF of it or a Word document. And uh, I mean, for that matter, we have it here. Uh, I, I, I have a copy of it in my own files that I use if, if necessary.
although typically it's always submitted as part of the, the, the stock jury instructions by either the defendant or the prosecution. So I want to leave some time for questions. Lori, I don't know if you are going to moderate for us. Um, I'm happy to. At this point, there aren't any more questions in the queue. So those of you participating, please, if you have a question, put it in the Q&A feature. Um, my initial question is, after hearing all of this, why would anyone bother? Is eyewitness testimony, I know it's more emotionally compelling, but on balance, is it worth it? I'm not sure what you mean. Like, is it on, on balance? Is it worth introducing that evidence, or is it on, is it worth challenging it and going through these experts and everything? Yes. The and latter. Just the expense. Yeah. Just the expense and time of trying to get an eyewitness testimony approved. And, and that's. I mean, that's a terrific question, and and I, I think the answer from each each perspective is this. Uh, in my career as a prosecutor, I became aware of the fact that that juries love eyewitnesses, regardless of how we can look at the science, regardless of how we look at how uh, reliable or unreliable they are and all of the factors that can come into play there. There is nothing that is more viscerally uh, um, influential than having a victim who has suffered a, a serious crime, a robbery, a rape, watching a, a loved one murder or something like that, sitting in the witness box and pointing across the courtroom and saying, that's the man that did it. Um, and, and so if you're a prosecutor, I mean, that's dynamite testimony and you want it, obviously. If you're a defense attorney, you have to recognize the fact that, that Juries are greatly influenced by that. And my experience, and that's anecdotal, but my experience is that a jury will accept eyewitness identification the way that they'll accept DNA evidence or fingerprint evidence. It, it, it has that degree of influence on them. And at least statistically, that's an outsized influence. I mean, we know how reliable DNA is. We know that eyewitness identification is not nearly that reliable. And so I think that under circumstances where the eyewitness identification is the primary evidence against the defendant, and especially if it's a stranger crime, that it's not somebody that the, that the witness knows either intimately or even tangentially, you know, the guy that, that, that worked at the 7-Eleven for a while, that's where I used to see him or whatever, you know, somebody that they've never encountered before. If there are cross-racial identification issues, if there are uh, exposure issues in terms of lighting, uh, uh, awareness and things like that. It's, I, I mean, if it's not ineffective assistance of counsel under those circumstances to ask for an instruction, at least if not an expert witness, then, then, it, then it's really close. Uh, so I, I mean, I think strategically, if, if that's the state's evidence, then as a defense attorney, you almost have to challenge it with every resource you have available. And we have a note in the chat box, actually, I think from one of our local experts, uh, we should also acknowledge that identification in the courtroom is not as reliable as prior identification. And we talked about the science a bit in our first, um, our first CLE, the idea that sometimes there's 
hindsight bias and confirmation bias. And that's one of the reasons that it's so important to get a confirmation statement at the time that the identification is made. That confirmation statement in many circumstances is a better indicia of reliability than is the witness's statement regarding their confidence level at trial. Uh, yeah, I mean, absolutely. If, if you have what you'd only characterize here as prior consistent statements that were made earlier in time before the identification was challenged and much closer in time to uh, the event that took place and hopefully under circumstances that are more objective, because as we've already pointed out, once you get to the preliminary hearing, once you get to trial, you only have one person there and everybody knows who it is, right? I mean, you don't, you don't have a witness who is asked, you know, do you see the person in court that did this, uh, that committed this crime against you and have them looking through the jury box and looking through the, uh, you know, the spectators <laughs> in the back and, and trying to figure out who it was. I mean, every, everybody in the room, even though they're not told, everybody knows who it is, right? I mean, everybody who knows who it's presumably supposed to be. And I've seen attorneys do things like try to have their clients sit in a different place in the in the courtroom rather than next to them. And I've never seen a judge allow that. Uh, and so, yeah, I, I mean, at that point, the witness is basically being asked to confirm something that they've already said under circumstances where they're basically being told, you're right, you just need to say it again. And we also add in the, the fact that witnesses don't want to disappoint. They've gotten this far. They don't want to disappoint the prosecutor at trial. You don't want to be the cause that the, you know, that sinks the entire case. And, and all along the line, they've been given some reinforcement about their decision. You know, if, if you were the victim of a crime and you went to a lineup and they said, you know, which person do you think committed this crime? And you pick number four and they said, okay, great. Thanks for your help. And you never heard from them again. You'd probably think, I guess that's not the person that they thought committed the crime. But if three weeks later you get a, you get a subpoena for a preliminary hearing and lo and behold, you come to court and there's number four, basically what you're, what you're, what you're hearing as a, as a lay witness that doesn't have any experience with this kind of thing is like, I must've got the right guy because they're trusting the police to do their job. They're, right. they're not they're not thinking for a moment that the only reason this person is here is because they identified them because they have to understand at some level that there was a reason that that particular person ended up in the lineup to begin with. Which is one of the reasons that the instructions in Rule 617 that investigators should give a witness prior to a show up or a lineup is so important because one of those instructions is you don't have to pick anyone. I'm I'm. Right not quite getting it verbatim. And regardless of what you say, the investigation is going to continue to take some of that pressure off the witness. I don't, Lori, I don't know if this is what you're getting to, but when I was doing research on this topic for a forthcoming book, I started to get really depressed about eyewitness identifications. Um, And one of the experts that I talked to, who's actually cited in some of the studies that our advisory committee used said, our goal with this is not to get rid of eyewitness identifications. Our goal with this is to build a better eyewitness identification. Build a better process. Yeah, and a more reliable ultimate outcome. Because 
whether okay. you're, I mean, as a former prosecutor, you know, the investigators I work with, 99.9% of them, they're doing a really hard job as well as they possibly can. And some of the experts I talked to said, the most receptive group to the science has been police officers, detectives, because the worst thing is to have the wrong person in jail and the right person continuing to victimize other people. Right. Yeah. So there, there are, there are two threats to, to the law enforcement investigator. Um, and, and as you point out they're they are incredibly dedicated. They are, I believe, uh, like almost universally honest. There are obviously some exceptions to that, just like there are with everything else, but they're almost universally honest and they want to get the right answer. Um, so the, 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 the two threats are, if you don't do it right, um, you're not going to get the perpetrator identified or the identification is going to be suppressed because you didn't do it right. Or because you didn't do it right, the witness is going to be subject to cross-examination that really uh, casts doubt on the accuracy and validity of the identification. But I, I think the primary thing that we have to recognize is that notwithstanding the fact that you can certainly have confirmation bias and that they believe they have the right person, uh, they don't want to not get it right. They don't ever want to convict somebody that's not guilty, but they also don't want to lose a conviction of somebody who's the actual perpetrator based on the, um, the mistakes that they make in the identification process, which either causes it to be suppressed in its entirety or leaves open a pretty uh, wide door for the defense to challenge the veracity of the eyewitness identification. And prosecutors don't want that either, right? I mean, you don't want tainted evidence. You don't want evidence that's going to make your case more difficult. You don't want your victim to have to go through some strenuous cross-examination like that. And that's a way to avoid it. It's just doing everything right on the front end. And you also don't want investigators who put on blinders and you know, trust and identification where a, a witness who was asked might say, in um, in a statement at the same time as the lineup, I think it's number four, but I'm not sure. Um, you want the investigator to have that information so they don't put blinders on and do everything they can to just find um, evidence that confirms that sure. preconceived notion. Yeah, exactly. Great. Well, our hour is up. Thank you very much. I think we could probably go for another hour on this, but we'll let our participants go. Thank you very much. This recording will be posted on the law school's YouTube page within a day or two to allow you to go back and review it. Um, Judge McKelvey, Professor Heine, thank you very, very much for putting this together and all your hard work. And uh, one more question, I think. Nope. Wait. Phenomenal presentation. Thank you so much. So, yes, it was phenomenal. Thanks, Ron. And we'll see you at our next CLE. Goodbye, everyone. Thank you. Thank you.